0: Romans chapter 16, we're looking at 16 verses today, 1 through 16, and uh, we're going to be reading a lot of names, so if any of you are expecting a child and you're trying to think through what should I name this baby, maybe pull one from this list, Romans 16, 1 through 16, let's stand together as we read God's word. The end of the book of Romans, almost the end, and Paul turns as he does to greetings, and he has an unusual number of greetings to give the church, the churches in Rome. Listen to this. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of my of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their neck for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Empinitas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus, Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncretus. Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who were with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who were with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This morning, we're going to study this somewhat unusual text to preach from, and I am simply going to title this sermon, People. Somebody say, People. People. That's it. That's our topic for today. Let's pray and ask God for His help. Father, we thank You for people, people that You have saved, people that we love. Father, we ask that You would speak to us today as we study this text the people that Paul loved, the people that you love. I pray that you would speak to us and encourage us. I pray that you would help me to preach your truth. It's not merely my thoughts and ideas, that you would open our hearts to change us, to transform us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My late grandfather, who I called Papa, was a confidant of mine when I was an early young pastor, early in my ministry. And I would often share my problems with him, and I remember one time in particular, I was sharing with my grandfather some problems with people. My grandfather was a lifelong pastor himself, and he said, it'll always stick with me, he said, ministry would be easy if it wasn't for people. (laughs) And he smiled, and he kind of made his point. Meaning, yeah, sure, people can be hard. Amen? I know I can get a more robust amen than that. People can be hard, therefore ministry can be hard, but this is the the point my grandfather was making. What is ministry without people? What is life without people? What is church without people? What is redemption without a people to redeem? What is the bride of Christ without people, and what is the new Jerusalem? without people. As the letter to the Romans begins to close, we are reminded that this letter is addressed to actual flesh and blood, flesh and blood people, recipients of the, the letter, just like you and me, regular folk. We're reminded that the early church, and here the early churches in Rome, were built upon and consisted of actual people with names and stories. And so Paul here, as he comes to a close in Rome, he spends, compared to the rest of his letters, an unusual amount of time giving his greetings to people. Now, who are these people? Well, most of them are virtually unknown outside of Romans chapter 16. But they are known to God. And they were known to the Apostle Paul. And, by the way, all of the Word of God is God's Word, and so therefore, as we come to Romans 16, we understand this is God's Word as well. And it matters. Because people matter. And so what I want to do as we begin here is I just want to dive right in, and I want to recognize those who Paul recognizes, and I want to work through this list. Who are these people? Well, we begin with Phoebe in verse 1. Phoebe is called a deacon. Deacon is a word that means servant. It could be that Phoebe is just a servant kind of person, or it could be that Phoebe held the office of deacon in the early church. I think that's probably more likely that she was a deacon at a church. And that's because the very next phrase says, a deacon of the church of Sancrea, which indicates that she may have held some kind of official capacity, official role as deacon. Who are deacons? Deacons, let's just be reminded, we have deacons in our church. Deacons are servants, people that are gifted as servants people that are deaconing, lowercase, and we recognize them as deacons, an official office of the local church. And deacons are people who are like Jesus, who himself called, called himself a deacon, a servant, someone who met needs, and so deacons are like Christ, and they serve. Well, let's look at Phoebe's service as a deacon. Paul says that she was worthy of help. He says that like, basically whatever she asks of you, give it to her. Well, that is somebody who must have been a good deacon. That's someone who must have served well. Because, verse 2, Paul says she was a patron of many and of myself as well. The word patron in the ancient culture would be a benefactor, someone who is representing another. Sometimes patrons would represent another one in court and even back them financially. So this means that Phoebe was likely loaded. She probably had a couple dollars. She was a supporter of many people, a beneficiary, a benefactor of Paul and his own ministry. Notice he says, I commend to you, Phoebe. Welcome her. Why is he saying that? Everybody else, he says, greet. Now he's saying, I want you to receive her. Why? Most scholars believe it's because Phoebe was the courier for the letter of Romans. Why is that? Well, Paul wrote Romans from Corinth, and her home church in Sencre is in Corinth. And so most likely Paul finished the letter of Romans and included all of these names and then gave the letter to Phoebe, which means that Paul thought a lot of Phoebe. You don't just give Romans to anybody. The distance between Corinth and Rome was about 600 miles, and in this day, travel was not easy. We were dealing with, they would be dealing with robbers, I was alive back then, we were, let me tell you what it was like, <laughs> youngins, back in my day, they were dealing with robbers, Often sleeping outside, often relying on the hospitality of strangers, traveling 600 miles was dangerous and difficult, and Paul said, Phoebe is the woman for the job. So he thought a lot of her. Going on, verse 3 through 16, now we see the greeting. So Paul sent the letter most likely through Phoebe, received her, now he says, let me greet everybody that I know. Who's part of the churches in Rome? He starts off with Prissa and Aquila. What's another name for Prissa? Priscilla. She's normally called Priscilla. Well, that's what Luke calls her. Paul prefers her nickname Prissa. He greets Prissa and Aquila. Well, who were they? We know a little bit about them. These were Jews, these were some of the Jews that were kicked out of Rome. So Acts chapter 18, verse 2 says, after Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul met Prissa and Aquila who left Rome. They were part of this Jewish cultured Christian that Paul was referring to back in Romans 14, remember. So Paul met this wonderful couple, they were travelers, they were business people, they were in the same trade as Paul, that's how they connected initially, they were hard workers. Paul commends them for their work. They were the, the couple who took Apollos, the greatest preacher, one of the greatest preachers of their day, under, under their wing and taught him some things. Paul says they risked their neck for me. We don't know what exactly that means, but some scholars believe that it could have been the riot in, in Ephesus, uh, that in some fashion maybe they put their life on the line in order to rescue we don't know exactly what it was, we just know that at some point it happened. They too were probably well off as business people. They traveled a lot, they had businesses probably all over the place. And in verse 5, what he says is, greet the church in their house. Now this is an interesting little glimpse into the first century church. Before churches were able to corporately own a space together, they would meet in the largest homes possible. Now, most of the Christians came from the poor community. But there would, there would be some wealthy Christians in the early church, and those wealthy Christians were often the ones who would use their resources to serve the church. And so they would open their larger homes for gatherings of maybe 70 or 80 people to come in and have basically small churches through Rome. And so they have a church in their house, they're using their resources for the glory of God. Verse 5, we're go, go, going on here, Epinetus. He says he's the first convert in Asia. He gives a shout out, verse 6, to Mary who worked hard for them. Verse 7, Andronicus and Junia, a husband and wife most likely. He says, they were in Christ before me. Now Paul became a Christian about a year after the crucifixion. So for him to say they were in Christ before me means that they were some of the very first converts to Christianity they're Jews so likely they're Jews with Greek names so likely they were part of that hellenistic Jew, jewish crowd that we see in the early part of acts whoever they were he says they were well known to the apostles some translations translate that outstanding among the apostles and there's some debate as to whether or not Andronicus and junia would be considered apostles It's possible that Paul's using the word apostle in kind of like a a lower sense, in in, in terms of like a sent one or a missionary. We know that they were not the 12 apostles. They didn't have that apostolic authority. The way it's translated here in the ESV is they were well known to the apostles, which means that perhaps the 12 were big fans of this couple. Whatever, Whatever that means, they were remarkable people. Now another thing to note from this list is that a number of the names, especially the names that come after verse seven, are slave names. And this is a reminder that Christianity was not birthed in the upper echelon of society. But Christianity was birthed among those who were poor in this world, yet rich in the next. Verse eight and nine, Empliatus and Urbanus are likely slaves. There's Stacus, Verse 10, Apelles, who's approved in Christ, and the family of Aristobulus. Verse 11, he greets Herodian. Herodian was probably a servant to one of the Herods, who's a convert to Christianity. In verse, uh, verse 11, he continues, the, the family of Narcissus. Now, this is interesting. The family of Narcissus is likely the family of a man who was a servant to Emperor Claudius, Who committed suicide, and he was well-known, a very famous individual of their day, it looks as if his family was converted to Christ and they're part of the churches in Rome. Again, real people with real stories. Verse 12, he greets two sisters. Again, these are slave names, Trifena and Trifosa, who worked hard. Another woman, Persis. Verse 13, Rufus, there's a name for your child, Rufus, and his mother, who was like a mother to Paul. Now, what's interesting about Rufus is this, Scholar, some scholars think, it's possible that Rufus was the son of Simon of Cyrene. You know who he is, the African who carried the cross for Jesus Christ. And it tells us in Mark that Simon had a son named Rufus. And scholars would tell you that Mark is very Rome-oriented, so it's likely that there's a connection here that he's talking about the wife of Simon of Cyrene and his son, Rufus. He greets a church in verse 14, which he simply refers to as the brothers, with Asynchrosis and Phlegon and Hermes and Petrobas and Hermas. In verse 15, he greets another church, which here he refers to as the saints, with Philologus and Julia and Nerus and his sister and Olympus. Finally, in verse 16, he says, exhorts the church to greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the churches of Christ greet you. Now, why is it worth it for us to take the time on a Sunday morning to walk through all of these names? It's because people matter. It's because these are real people who mattered to Paul, and more importantly, they mattered to God. And for us, where people sometimes seem a little bit more like a problem than a blessing, we've got to be reminded this morning that the gospel shapes a whole new community. And you are no longer alone. You no longer walk alone. You no longer work alone. You no longer go through life alone because you have a gospel community. And so what I would like to do as a lesson for us this morning is draw out four values on this gospel community that if we can pick up and value along with Paul then we will begin to value people in the right way. Value, number one, for gospel community. Number one, appreciation. Appreciation. For Paul, people are not products. For Paul, people are not merely a means to a pragmatic end. For Paul, people are not cogs for an institutional purpose, only to be discarded when you no longer need them for your personal project. As you consider people, as you consider your relationships, or lack like thereof, with people, we have to step back and ask ourselves, who or what is our God? God because how we answer that question will change how we deal with each other the task driven goal oriented person may say people serve me to accomplish my purposes our goals can become gods people can be shoved to the sidelines to uh, to the side side to meet deadlines uh, people can be abused to meet demands. And then you often end up annoyed with folks because, well, they're not perfect. And they don't do exactly what you want them to do. They don't achieve exactly what you think they should achieve. They don't perfectly accomplish what you think they should accomplish. And so you are endlessly annoyed with people. And if you know who you are, you don't have to say amen. You just know who you are. You'll know these people because they often discard folks when they're not part of the program. Now, the opposite of this would be the kind of person who says, my purpose is to serve people. Instead of people serving my purpose, my purpose is to serve people. Well, what's wrong with this? These folks are endlessly burned out. They're people-pleasing, and they are forever let down by people. Listen, people will never fulfill you. Nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, people will disappoint you. And for two to three years, you know, you'll, you'll serve these people and you'll, you'll be all in with these people. And then at some point you'll say, forget it. They don't appreciate my service and they don't deserve my service. And you see, really, at the core of it, people are their gods. For them, people are really to be feared. I don't mean that they're afraid of people, but rather they're, they're seeking approval from people. Or even approval of themselves based on how they serve people. They make, you know, people, service to people really just strokes their ego and makes them feel less guilty about some things in life. They come across as nice, but in the end, they're no different than the latter, the former rather, and they're merely just using people. Using people to serve themselves. You'll know these folks because they're often going to the broken. They're going to the hurting. But they have very few long-term relationships. They give up quickly. They move on quickly. Others, there might be a third category here. Others find that peace of mind is their God. And people are just problematic. People get in the way. You know, they're comfortable with their own mess, but they don't have space or grace for others. And so these folks can be withdrawn and cold and cut off from people. And because of the pain and the heartbreak which people introduce, it is easier to just simply go through life alone. Saints, I don't know if you've ever been there, but you've been broken by someone. You've been crushed. You've been heartbroken. And you say, you know what? I will never open myself up to another. I am much better off alone. Now, this kind of individual is really, again, no different than the first two. In that, they use people as needed. But if people are not needed, They're quickly discarded. Now, I think if we are all honest, we all find ourselves in each one of these categories at sundry times and places, to use biblical language. Various times and places. But none of these attitudes are particularly Christian. Our problem is this. People make terrible saviors, amen? If we try to make people the savior of our purposes, we will be endlessly critical of them. If we try to make people the center of our service, we will be endlessly let down by them. If we try to find in people a peace that they were never meant by God to give, then we will be endlessly cutting people off. But see, the gospel says, Jesus is my Savior. Come on, somebody can say amen. We can wake up and give God the glory at the fact that we can find our worth and our value in Christ and in Christ alone not in people meaning my purpose is to serve him now that inevitably evolves what people exactly because I see that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son the Christian says then I have a love for the people that God loves. Are you with me? What I love about the 16th chapter of Romans is that Paul first remembers people. He remembers them. You know, this is before text messaging when you could be like, hey, I'm about to write this letter and can you remind me of some of these names? Like, this is before he could just Google, like, Roman churches. i got to remember what the pa- how to spell that. Andracanusis? Andra, 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 can, can, no, Paul actually remembers them. Think about this. He didn't forget them. Some of these people, he hadn't served with them for years. Some of these people he's never even met. He's only heard of them. And he, it, it's hit his heart. It's shaped his mind. And he remembers people. And secondly, Paul is thankful for them. Gratitude oozes from this chapter. We see that Paul was not like some kind of loner missionary out there doing his own thing, building the church of God on his own, but rather there is this diverse and multifaceted army of people that Paul is working with. Now, certainly, none of these people were perfect, amen? Like, is it possible that Priscilla and Aquila could have had some annoying traits? You know? Is it possible that maybe in, in working together on a tent or something, they really bugged Paul, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to go work on my own tent, and you guys can do your thing, you know? We don't know, but it's possible. It's, I would say it's likely that some of these people could get on your nerves, since people still remain in the flesh and don't and, and, and are not completely sanctified, is it possible that Urbanus would occasionally have some behaviors that were off-putting? It's possible. I say that to say this: as Paul writes, it's not it's not their weaknesses that he remembers. But as he writes, what he remembers is their work for the gospel. As he writes, what he remembers is their desire for the church. Saints, do you you tend to be critical or thankful? As you consider the people of God, do you see their deficiencies or do you see their contributions? Kent Hughes writes this. He says, the fullness of spirit calls us to a radical spirit of gratitude. What he means by that is that there are really two kinds of people. There are critical people and there are thankful people. And the fullness of the spirit in the believer's life drives us to be thankful for others and not merely a cantankerous, critical spirit. Ken Hughes talks about this, this pastor that he met with who was a pastor of a very large, successful church with a lot of great people in it. And he said when he met with this pastor, this pastor was endlessly dissatisfied. He was constantly complaining about the people that he has to work with. He was downcast. And then he said he he shortly thereafter went and visited another pastor who served in a little remote western town. And he said that as he walked down this dusty street, he saw the man's little church, and he saw the man's mobile home, and he had a a car that was almost broke down. And he said as he walked down the streets, and they're walking around Tumbleweed, he said that this man could not stop thanking God for all of the blessings in his life including the people he gets to work with. And he said that the man said, I've got such a wonderful wife, and I've got such a wonderful little church of people to serve, and I've got uh, sunshine 365 days a year. He was just a thankful spirit. Like, what a difference appreciation makes. What a difference a spirit of gratitude makes. And I'm telling you, the fullness of the Spirit calls us to a radical sense of gratitude for one another. Because these are the people for whom Christ died. And even the individual with the smallest amount of faith is believing something that will last forever. And you can at least be grateful for the faith that they have in Jesus Christ. Appreciation is the first value. Second value is affection. Affection. In Paul's affection, we see here that the gospel shapes our relationships. Look at these terms that Paul uses for his friends. He first, in verse 1, he calls Phoebe, sister, my sister. The gospel has reworked the family. This kind of idea of like calling someone who's not your sister or not your brother, Sister or brother. That was unheard of prior to the church. That was unheard of in Greco-Roman culture. That came with the blood of Jesus Christ uniting us as a family. And it reworks the family to where Paul says, she is my sister. Paul later writes, To treat older men as fathers and older women as mothers and younger brothers as, or younger men as brothers and younger women as sisters. Think about how that transformed a community in the first society or in in, in the first century. Think about how that transformed a community where you would disregard others or just simply look at others with lust or use people for your service, for your own uh, uh, benefit. This transformed everything. To call Phoebe sister means I see her with absolute purity. Absolute purity. The way that you would treat your sister. The way that you would treat your brother. The way that you would treat your father. The way that you would treat your mother. Yet absolute purity doesn't mean cold. There's affection and warmth. This is the church. This is is the new relationships that God has brought us into with the gospel. In verse 13, look at how he refers to Rufus' mother. He says, she is like a mother to me. What a wonderful way to honor a woman who has served him in some some fashion. Verse 5 Verse 8, verse 12, we see Beloved, Beloved, Beloved. My Beloved and Penetus. I'm I'm Pleiades, my Beloved in the Lord. Greet the Beloved Persis. This means most loved. Paul not only appreciated folks, Paul loved folks. Now, you might be tired of people. You might not even like people but you should love them. You should should love them. Well, someone might say, well, it's too risky. I've been burned before. I've been heartbroken before. It's too risky to love. Let me give you counsel from C.S. Lewis in the book, The Four Loves. He says this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. What he's saying is this. Is if we protect ourselves and don't risk love, we will become brittle and hard and loveless. And that's the stuff that hell is made out of. Hell is the one place where there is no love. Or you can risk love. And yes, you may be brokenhearted at times, but your heart will be warm. Your heart will be malleable. It will be that of love. Now don't just walk out of here with a determination to love better. Walk out of here looking to the Christ that Paul was looking to and to the Christ that these people were looking to. It's not an attempt to love better that causes us to love better, but it's us gazing upon the beauty and the love of Jesus Christ So saints, see what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. Oh, how did He do it? It was love. Greater love has no man than this, than a man who lays down his life for his friends. It was love that brought him to this earth to serve us. It was love that led Christ to obey the Father to the point of death. It was love that kept Him on that old rugged cross dying for the sins of you and I. It was love. I was dead in my trespasses and in my sins, but love lifted me. Love lifted me when nothing else could help. Love lifted me. A Christian doesn't need to try to love. A Christian has been lifted by love. We're made new by love. We are transformed by love. And so, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The values of a gospel community, appreciation, affection. And let me give you a third. Affirmation. Affirmation. What we see here is that this gospel has reordered the social status. Remember, this is written in first century Rome. In this culture, women were seen as nothing more than property. Men and women were born as slaves and given slave names, which is how scholars know who were slaves in the list. These, this, these social divisions drove wedges all throughout the Roman culture. It would not have been a place of oneness and unity and equality But the church came along and radically redefined social status in creating a whole new community which valued, honored, and affirmed slaves and women. And in our day, I think unfortunately... We can sometimes see the senior pastor, the lead pastor, whoever's doing most of the preaching, as sort of the minister, and everybody else are simply recipients of the ministry. And we can minimize who the workers are and who those are that we ought to be giving gratitude toward and appreciation toward. For Paul, everybody was a minister. This multifaceted, beautiful display of God's people at work. And it consisted of people of all backgrounds. Some wealthy, many poor, some slaves, freed slaves. And it created this equal level playing field. And even when you track through history, it was the perversion of the church which then led to things like slavery in America or abuse of women. That's the perversion of the church. Frederick Douglass said, that's not true Christianity. That is not the Christianity of Christ, he said. And it's always the revival of the gospel truths that led back to equality to value one another, to freedom, to love one another, to reorder society and say, no, we are one body united on one level ground at the cross. And so then when we skip down to verse 16, I want to point this out. What he says is to this real, real diverse group of people, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, that's something that isn't seen in Greco-Roman culture prior to Christianity. This came with the church. This kind of radical reorienting of society where they're coming together and they're seeing each other and men and women and Slaves and free and wealthy and poor are coming together in one and greeting one another with a holy kiss. Meaning there might be divisions out there. But there are no divisions in here. There are no divisions in here. And then he goes on to say in in, in that same verse "And all the churches of Christ greet you. Again, another nod toward the unity of the gospel. Meaning there aren't some Roman churches over here, there aren't Greek churches, there aren't Jewish churches, but rather all churches which are founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ stand together in solidarity with you, churches in Rome. And they greet you. Affirmation. Affirming one another. What does that look like? Should we greet each other with a holy kiss? We could have a discussion on this. I don't think it's part of the liturgy, which some churches have done, That's something to think about, I don't know, let's, <laughs> let's go back to that, uh, maybe we'll do like a Wednesday night on greeting each other with a holy kiss, are we, are we to be doing this? All right, fourth and last value, action, action, action. The gospel community is one led by the gospel through Christ to Action what I mean by that is the gospel inspires ministry and sacrifice. So again, just looking at this list, Phoebe, going back to Phoebe, she's someone who used her resources for the work of God. She poured herself out as a patron for Paul and many others. She risked her own life, likely, to go across 600 miles to deliver the letter. She was someone who was inspired by the gospel to action, to serve the church, the gospel, Jesus Christ. Prissa and Aquila, also people known for their action, homeowners who used their home to say, hey, this, our wealth is not just for us, but we're going to turn this into a church building who risked their life in some fashion, laid their own life on the line so that Paul might live action. Look at how often he says, uses the word work in verse 6. He says, Mary worked hard. Verse 9, Urbanus, our fellow worker. Verse 12, workers in the Lord. Persis, who worked hard. The early church was a working church. They were known for their hard work for the Lord. Our service to God should not be a reluctant duty, but rather a rewarding delight. Here's what I mean in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 18. Paul says, "So we fix our eyes on what is uh, not on what is seen." But rather, we fix our eyes on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, is going away. It's not going to be here forever. It's not going to be here even for long. It's temporary. And so the Christian does not focus on what is seen, what is temporal, but rather what is unseen. And Paul says, that is eternal this leads us to a perspective shift. It led the early church to a perspective shift. And as we study their hard work and know all about various situations, it leads us to change our mind about what we value in this life. In 200 years from now, what of your work will be left? Think about this. Let's go back 2,000 years. These are real people, real situations. They were working real jobs. They had real families, real lives. 2,000 years later, every house they ever built is gone. Every bank account they ever owned is gone, or it would have been probably buried treasures. Every buried treasure they ever had is rotted away. Every promotion they looked for at work is forgotten by history. 2,000 years later, all of their own personal dreams and aspirations and things that they think they need to make themselves happy are not known to the world. In 200 years from now, everything that we are working for in this world will be gone. I mean, think of it. How many of your own family members do you know from 200 years ago? Probably none of us would know any of them. As important as they were. In 200 years from now, your paychecks will be gone. In 200 years from now, your best clothes will be gone probably burned, buried, in 200 years from now, your house will probably have fallen down. Some of us much sooner than that. You see, these these men and women that we see in Romans 16, they worked for treasures in heaven. Certainly they were just as busy with things on earth as you guys are. But what they were commended for and known for was their work in eternal things, unseen things. Every prayer that was prayed by these men and women, every prayer is eternally heard by God forever and ever, not gone. Every word spoken To encourage a saint is lasting. It's not gone. It's still around in heaven. Every every lost individual that they led to Christ is is eternally giving praise to the Lord. I mean, there are things that they did with their time on earth that are reaping reward after reward after reward forever and ever and ever. These things, they may be forgotten by us. We don't know all of their ministries, but these things are not forgotten by God. And forever, in all of eternity, the praises from the mouth of the redeemed will give testimony for the fact that these things were beautiful and worth their sacrifice. Meaning, I would rather be forgotten on this earth and remembered in heaven than to be well known on this earth and for many years to come and not known in heaven. The gospel not only then leads us to appreciation, affection, and affirmation, but the gospel leads us to action. Because we see that we have a bigger story that we're living for. We're part of a something bigger and greater. And the irony is this. Some of you are so focused on the here and now that you can't actually be present in the here and now. It's not until, here's the irony, it's not until we focus on that eternal reward and find our identity in something bigger and greater than ourselves in Jesus Christ and start storing up treasures in heaven that we can now be free to love those in our life right now and not try to use them for our personal purposes. It's not until we understand that eternal reward that we become fully present in the here and now. Let me give an example of this. There's a movie called Soul about this jazz musician that my boys watch over and over and over again. The main character this jazz musician, he said, I'm just afraid that if I died today, my life would have amounted to nothing. And as a result of that kind of fear, he's angry, And he's critical of those around him, and he is not living a happy life. You see, this jazz musician thought that he had to achieve some kind of big gig in order to really be able to be happy, satisfied, have contributed, and die in peace. But how wrong he is. How wrong he is. You know, even success in this world, the big gig, it doesn't satisfy the soul. Elvis said to his, his assistant, Kathy, later in his career, he, he was lamenting to her and said that he's contributed nothing, done nothing that would be remembered. He felt no satisfaction from his accomplishments. My point is this. In our search for significance, we cannot look to the things of this world, but we look to Christ. In our search for significance, we look to Him. Meaning, we don't just listen to this sermon and go out of here trying to be nicer and and I'm going to attempt to try harder and I'm I'm going to uh, be a more loving individual. No, we walk out of here looking to Christ. Looking to Christ. Being transformed by the gospel. Look, the gospel is not explicitly stated in Romans chapter 16, but Romans chapter 16 comes after Romans chapter 1 through 15. Meaning all of this kind of life, it flows from looking to Christ. Are you with me? Like this is nothing more than a community who looked to Christ and was transformed by him. If I could just point out really quick verse 10, which I quickly skipped over as we were going through it. Greet apelles he says, who is approved by Christ. Approved by Christ. What a great thing that would be to be said of you. Alton, approved by Christ. Marla, approved by Christ. Miss Bina, approved by Christ. You see, so much of our life we are seeking approval of man. We are trying to find out whether or not we are good enough. And the gospel says you are approved in Christ. And it changes everything. And it creates this diverse and beautiful patchwork of a church where people are working together for the things of Christ. What greater significance can there be? What do we see when we look to Christ? Three days... After his death, after he paid the price for our redemption, three days later, he got up. Meaning there is more than what we can see and touch. There is more than the here and now. And he looked at us and he says, all who are weary, all who are tired, all who are burned out, all who are frustrated, come to me and I will give you rest. And in that rest, we find life. Shortly after he discovered that he was going to die, W.B. Henson walked five miles from his home in Portland, and he looked at the mountain that he loves, the river in which he rejoiced, the stately trees, which felt like God's own poetry to his soul. Before he died, he, he told his friends that that evening he looked at the mountain And he said, mountain, I shall be alive when you are gone. River, I shall be alive when you cease running toward the sea. Stars, I shall be alive when you have fallen from your sockets. I shall be alive. I shall be alive. The saints That we just read about in Romans chapter 16, like they've been dead for 2,000 years. A long time ago, history forgot about them. A long time ago, their bodies turned to dust. But, church, they are alive. They're alive. And this is not just their story, this is our story. We shall be alive. And one day, we will join with these names around that throne, which we read about in Revelation chapter 5. And we will declare with them in one voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive our power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb forever and ever and ever. Amen. 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 Father, we thank you for the hope that we have of the gospel. We thank you how the gospel has transformed us and has transformed our society as a local church. I pray that we would appreciate one another, that we would show affection to one another that we would affirm one another, and that we would be inspired to action with one another as we look to Christ and find our significance in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.